We're getting to the sermon a little late, so it might have to be a shorter sermon. And all God's people said, oh, come on. That may be a good thing. I might want to hustle through this one. There's some things in this text that just make you scratch your head. But um, hopefully we'll be able to glean some good truth from it. We are in the book of Acts. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, turn there on your phone or any other device you might have. We love the Word of God around here and want to attend to it. And we're coming to the last section or the last portion of this section in the gospel or in the book of Acts. Um, long time ago, we started the book. 1 1 to 247 was the birth of the church in Jerusalem. And you can't even see Jerusalem, it's kind of right down here. The birth of the church, 1 1 to 247. And then it began to expand in Jerusalem in 3 1 to 6 7. And then in 6 8 to 931, it extended outside of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and to Galilee. And then in 932 to 1224, it extended all the way up to Antioch. Then in 1225 to 16.5, it extended into Asia Minor. And now we've been looking at this section, 16.6 all the way to 19.20, it extends to the Aegean Sea. And if you've been with us of late, you remember the gospel in this section. Paul revisited these churches, wanted to go to Ephesus. God said no, turned north. God said no, came to Troas, come over here and help us. And so they planted a church in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens in Corinth. And then we saw last week that Paul left Corinth and dropped off Priscilla and Aquila, came back to Jerusalem and then back to Antioch. And now we're about to see Paul's third missionary journey. And in fact, it's not going to be much of a journey. Paul is going to go through and revisit these churches that he planted on the first journey. And this time, God's going to bring him all the way to Ephesus. And he will be here for two to three years. And so it's not one of these where he's moving on from place to place. And you see that in chapter 19, verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is an important place. It's one of the leading cities of the day, along with Antioch and Alexandria, which is down, down here in Egypt, and of course, Athens and Corinth and way over here, Rome. Ephesus is one of the larger cities at this time in the in world history, 250,000 people, some think. It is located right there on the waters of the Aegean Sea. It was an incredible place of trade, and so it was a wealthy place. So it was a leading commercial city. It was a leading political city as it was the capital of the Roman province of Asia, which is all of this area here. It was a leading religious center, it was the home of the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana. If you remember from your history classes, the seven wonders of the ancient world, one of those was the temple of Diana or Artemis that was there in Ephesus. 
It was famous, Ephesus was, for its fascination with magic, with sorcery and the casting of spells, and we're going to see some of that this morning. It boasted of a theater that would hold some 25,000 people. It was an incredible place, and it's interesting that before Luke closes this section of the book and takes us on the extension of the gospel all the way to Rome, God in his providence has Paul come here. The gospel's been planted all around the Aegean Sea, but not yet in Ephesus. And here comes Paul. Let's read it. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we've not even heard that there, was, there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. This one has me scratching my head. It has for years, and it's had me scratching my head all of this week. I think at the end of the day, what we have here are, when, when Luke tells us that Paul found some disciples, he's writing from Paul's perspective. Paul comes into Ephesus, and he, he finds these fellows who appear to him to be disciples, appear to him to be followers of Jesus. Maybe they've been hanging around with Priscilla and Aquila, who have been in Corinth, in fact, there are some believers already in Ephesus. Maybe they've been hanging around the church there. And when Paul comes to Ephesus, he meets these guys. It looks like they were kind of awesome buddies of some sort. And they appear to be disciples. But something gave Paul some doubts. Maybe as he spent time with them and was visiting with them, maybe he, he noticed a lack of joy in their hearts, maybe as they were describing their experience of, quote, believing in Jesus, he just something wasn't sure. And maybe some of you have had this experience before where you're visiting with someone who, by all accounts, claims to be a Christian, but the more and more you, you spend time with them, you start to think, ah, you know what, I'm not so sure if they know the Lord. I'm not so sure if they really understand the gospel. Paul begins to have his doubts, and he asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? The normal experience of a person when they come to faith in Jesus Christ is the reception of the Holy Spirit. The very presence of God comes into your life and begins to, to change your life. And so Paul asks them, and, and they said, no, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now, apparently, they've been baptized into John's baptism. That's John the Baptist. Apparently, they were familiar with his ministry, that John the Baptist has, had come in preparation of the Messiah, and he was calling people to repentance and to baptize, into baptism in anticipation of the one who would come and baptize in the Holy Spirit the one who would bring in the kingdom. And so they apparently were familiar 
with John's teaching and that one was going to come and who was going to baptize in the Holy Spirit, but if we're reading it right, it seems that they, they didn't know that those things had come to fruition. And so Paul's a little bit confused, and he says, in, in, into what then have you been baptized? Maybe a question like, what is it that you believed? And they said, into John's baptism, we, we believed the things that John was talking about. And verse 4, Paul said, and I add this, oh, oh, Y'all believed what John was teaching, and boy, was it good. But y'all are seemingly unaware that what he talked about has come to fruition in Jesus Christ. John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is, in Jesus. So apparently Paul took some time to tell them, guys, Jesus has come. The one that John was pointing to is here. And I'm not sure, so sure y'all know it. He, he was the Son of God who came and he lived and then he died upon a cross to pay the penalty for our sins and then God raised him from the dead and God exalted him to his right hand and from there he has poured forth his spirit into the lives of all who believe. The one that John was pointing to it has come and salvation is found in him and the gift of the Holy Spirit is found in him. And in verse 5, when they heard this, they said, oh, and they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. These are not bad guys. These apparently aren't even really misinformed guys. They were uninformed guys. They thought they were on the right track, but they were uninformed about Jesus. And the good news found in him, and when they heard it, they said, oh, and they trusted in Jesus and they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were in all about 12 men. Tongues shows up in the book of Acts in three places explicitly. I think four in chapter two when the Holy Spirit first comes at, Pe at Pentecost and um, the believers, the Jewish believers, speak in tongues. And then I think in chapter 8, whenever Philip goes to the Samaritans, Samaritans are not Jewish, they're half Jewish. They're half Jew, half Samaritans. When Philip takes the gospel to them and they believe, and you'll have to go back and listen to it, God withholds his spirit. And he had a very good reason for doing so. Peter and John come, see what Philip is doing among the Samaritans, recognize that indeed they have believed the gospel, they laid their hands on them, and they, Luke tells us, received the Spirit. I think it's implied that they then spoke in tongues. Now, don't hold me to it, it's an argument from silence. In chapter 10, when Peter goes to Cornelius' house, Cornelius is not a Jew, he's not a half-Jew Samaritan, he's a Gentile. And he has his Gentile family and Gentile friends and Peter shares the gospel with them and the Holy Spirit comes upon them when they believe and they speak in tongues. And now in chapter 19, and I think maybe it's this, that Jerusalem, Samaria, 
Gentiles, but Cornelius and his family are, are God-fearing Gentiles within Jerusalem, within Israel. This is a group that is outside to the remotest parts of the earth. Maybe that's the point. I'm not sure. But one point is this. Apparently, tongues was not a normal thing. It's not, it doesn't pop up everywhere someone believes in the book of Acts. If you're interested in my position on tongues, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the Acts chapter 2 sermon. Having said all of that, let's lead the uninformed to life-giving faith in Jesus. At the end of this section, Luke is going to tell us the word of the Lord in verse 20 was growing mightily and prevailing. Part of that was as the gospel was going out to those who really had never heard it. Our city is filled with people, well-intentioned, but maybe just uninformed about the grace of God that has come in Jesus Christ. And what a privilege we have, as Paul did here, to go, oh, no, let, let me tell you what God has done and to share the good news of the gospel with them, and them go, oh, and believe it. Verse 8, And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So as was his custom, Paul goes to the synagogue, to the Jewish synagogue, and is is. Speaking boldly, he's reasoning and persuading. He's trying to help them understand that all of the anticipation for the Messiah has come in Jesus Christ. He is the one you were hoping for. And he is the one who is bringing in the kingdom. And yet, some, of our, some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people. And Paul withdrew from them and took away the disciples reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. I love verse 10. Some of you have heard me teach on it a little bit before, but if we read this correctly, Paul comes to Ephesus, leads these 12 to Christ, begins doing evangelism among the Jews in the synagogue and is largely rebuffed, goes to the school of Tyrannus. This is a, it's a school there in Ephesus, probably a, a hall of some sort, a, a room, a building that could be used or rented. And the idea seems to be that Paul, during the afternoon hours when the school of Tyrannus would take its breaks, and as the scholars tell us, they would, uh, a lot of the working would, would take off for a siesta, that during those afternoon hours, the Apostle Paul would be in this school hall and he would be teaching. And people would be coming to him and he would be teaching them the Word of God leading them to faith, training them up, and apparently then sending them out. 
This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. If you're familiar with the New Testament and the book of Revelation, it's, it's written to the church in Ephesus and Smyrna and I'm not going to get these in the right order, Pergamum and Sardis and Thyatira and Laodicea to these seven, Ephesus plus six other churches that are right around in this area. Many believe it's during this two-year stay when Paul is training up and sending out disciples that those churches got planted. Colossae is a church right down here that Paul had never been to Colossae. But a fellow named Epaphras, we think probably during this two-year stay, comes to Ephesus, gets trained up by Paul, and goes home and plants the church in Colossae, and probably the church right down the road in Hierapolis. If that's true, what a two years. What an amazing, fruitful time. I like to say that Paul set up the Ephesus Institute, you know? He's going to spend some time there, and he's going to teach, and he's going to train, and he's going to send out. So part of this prevailing church is maybe an admonition like this. Let's train up the willing and send them out for heroic gospel deeds. All who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord as a result of this two-year stay. Paul training up those who were willing to take the gospel where it wasn't already named. Wouldn't it be great for some sort of verse 10 to read, this took place for whatever years, so that all who lived in Katy heard the word of the Lord. If indeed it will be so, notice, it's not Paul who's doing it. It's those who are being trained up who are going out and doing it. Richard Lovelace, in his book, The Dynamics of Spiritual Life, a very influential book, said this, the American laity may be the sleeping giant that holds the key to effective world mission. The American laity, it's, it's not me, right? I'm the pastor. The laity, the laos, the people. The American laity may be the sleeping giant that holds the key to effective world mission. Richard Hutchison has shown that every past spiritual awakening has been an age of lay activism. They gave their wealth, their time, and their energy to the task of extending the rule of Christ, both through evangelism and through the reshaping of society. May God do so here. Redeemer Community Church and through Redeemer Community Church and the other churches in our city as the people of God who are willing to take bold steps to take the gospel into our city. 
to tell of the good news of Jesus Christ and to start ministries that are reaching people that nobody else may be reaching. Verse 11. So my best effort, let's lead the uninformed to life-giving faith in Jesus. Let's train up the willing and send them out for heroic gospel deeds. And now let's live in communion with Jesus and proclaim the apostolic faith. Then shall come forth the fruits of repentance and faith. Let me show you what I'm trying to do with verses 11 and following. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were being carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. Uh, this week I was studying in my office, went down the hall, get a cup of coffee, came back and Antonio had put a rag on my doorknob. And when I got to my door, I stopped, and then he could see me, and he laughed. He says, hey, can you touch that for me and give it back so that I can do some miracles with your power? I threw it back at him. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. This is not normative. We don't see this kind of thing happening elsewhere. Well, we did see... That's maybe one of the purposes that Luke has in the book of Acts. Peter, earlier, his shadow would fall upon people and they would be healed. And here is Paul. That his handkerchief or his apron was carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. I think, and you can study it yourself, Ephesus was a place of magic. Ephesus was a place of sorcery. Ephesus was a place, we're about to see it, where guys would try through their magic, through their sorcery, through their charms, through the casting of spells, to tell people's fortunes, to heal them of their diseases, to cast out evil spirits, to bring blessing upon them or curses upon their enemies. And here God is using his man to do these incredible things just with the touch of his handkerchief, the touch of his apron. The great power of God through his man. Verse 13. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place, attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. What's going on here? Apparently, there were these seven guys, verse 14, seven sons of one Sceva. They were Jewish exorcists. They were not the best of men. They had come to a place like Ephesus, and apparently they were at least claiming to be able to tell fortunes and cast spells and cure diseases and the like. We've seen this in the book of Acts a couple of times when Philip went to Samaria and there was Simon who saw the miracles that were being done and said, how much money to have that power too? 
He wanted to have that ability so that he could impress the people so he could make some money. And we saw it when Paul in chapter 13 on the first missionary journey, he's trying to lead Sergius Paulus to Christ and there's that magician Bar-Jesus, the son of Jesus, who's trying to step in the way between the Apostle Paul and the good news of the gospel and Sergius Paulus and Paul blinding that man. And here we see these guys wanting this power. And so they're going to try it too. I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish false priest, were doing this. The evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? Wow. I recognize Jesus, the evil spirit says. I know exactly who he is. And I know Paul. Paul is one who is in fellowship with Jesus. And Paul is one who listens to Jesus. And Paul is one who proclaims Jesus. And Paul is one who depends on Jesus. I know him. But who are you? These unbelieving men trying to use Jesus to gain a following and make some money. Is that still around? Religious charlatans who don't themselves know Jesus and seek to be faithful to Jesus and preach Jesus and depend on Jesus. They just want to use Jesus so they can make some money. Verse 16, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now that's funny. I can remember my old pastor, Tom Nelson, he used to tell the story when he would teach this. He would say, he was a quarterback at North Texas too, and he said, one time we went up to Arkansas and he said, I didn't play much, but I got to play against Arkansas. And he said, I remember coming to the line of scrimmage and a big old linebacker from Arkansas looked across the line of scrimmage at me and said, I'm going to slap you naked and steal your clothes. And Tom said he just looked at the guy, you know. Well, that's what happened here. They got slapped naked and their st clothes stolen. This morning, Matt Williamson walked into my office and I was laughing out loud, which I hardly ever do. And he goes, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm reading this verse again, and I'm thinking, what must that have looked like? And then it popped into my head. If you've ever seen Secondhand Lions, when Hub McCann's is in, the, is in the bar, and those four guys, those four young guys come in and want to mess with him, and Hub McCann shows them what, what's up, you got to go watch it this afternoon. Do Secondhand Lions fight scene on YouTube. Well, he whoops four of them. Well, this guy whoops seven of them. He is not impressed. This evil spirit is not impressed with these unbelieving guys who are simply trying to use Jesus for their own whims. He recognizes Jesus, though, and he knows Paul. 
I gotta ask the question, would he know me? I recognize Jesus, no doubt about it. And I know Mitch, but who are you? Like to think he would know me and he would know all of us who are God's children. Because we are those who are in communion with Christ, we're not just trying to use him. Because we're those who submit ourselves to Christ, because we're those who look to Christ and depend upon Christ. This became known, this whooping became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. They counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. Y'all, that's revival. That's true repentance. That's people who were given over to the magic and to the sorcery and to the trying to the control the spirits through their incantations and through their if you will, from trying to figure out themselves how do we control the unseen world so that blessing can come to us or curses can come to our enemies or whatever it might, to heal our diseases and the like. They gave all that up because they had found it's not, life is not meant to be lived from here up into the metaphysical world. It's, it's lived from up there where God is down. God has made himself known through the person of his son and through his word. And so we don't go to magicians and we don't go to sorcerers and we don't go to palm readers and we don't go to Ouija boards. We don't, we don't go to witch doctors trying to find out our fortune, trying to get our blessing, trying to cast curses We don't do that. We don't need to do that. So if you're into that, you, you burn it all and you say, God has made himself known. God has come near in the person of his son. God has revealed his person and his ways in the word. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. I don't know if I'm reading the text right, but in verse 10, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. In verse 17, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Man, don't you want that here? How wonderful would that be? Well, in the midst of all of that are, is the sharing of the good news with those who just had never heard it. And it's the training up and the sending out of God's people to take the gospel where it wasn't named. And it's a man in fellowship with Jesus whom the demons know. And through him 
and the gospel that he was proclaiming, many were coming to put their faith in Jesus, leaving behind the old life and finding new life in Jesus. May the word of God grow mightily and prevail here as well. Let's pray. Oh, may it be so. God, would you so use us as you did, Paul? As we venture out and come upon those who who maybe think that they're right with God, but lo and behold, they don't know about Jesus and his love and they don't know about grace through faith in Jesus. And maybe, God, we could be the ones to share that good news with them. And may it be so, God, that you would raise up men and women here at Redeemer who would take the gospel into our city and even around the world, filling our city with the knowledge of the Lord taking it to the nations where he has not been named. And Lord, may it be said of us that we, we know Christ. We submit to Christ. We depend upon Christ. We proclaim Christ. That the demons would shudder. I have here in my notes a quote I forgot to share of Chadwick. The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Lord, it seems that the devil trembled when Paul comes to town. And God, would you so use Redeemer and the gospel-loving churches here in our city and bring about hundreds, if not thousands of people who would come to faith in Jesus Christ, that the word of the Lord would be magnified, that the word of the Lord would grow and prevail. And Father, if there's any here this morning who themselves thought that they were right with God, but really didn't know that in fact a right relationship with God is found through Jesus Christ, not in their own efforts, not in their own religious toil, not in their own righteousness, but it's found in the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness and he is our forgiveness. His life for us, his death for us, his resurrection for us. Maybe right now they would turn from themselves and they would cast their souls upon Jesus 
and in him find life. And we will pray this for Jesus' glory and in his name. Amen. Amen.